0: Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another uh, roundup edition of On the Margin. I am joined, as always, by my debonair co-host, Mr. Mark Yuska. Ah, debonair.
1: So nice. Especially since I know I look like crud today because I got a little daycare cold from my grandson, which totally worth it. Totally worth it. Um, but, uh, I, I am struggling a little bit, so I, I apologize for, for looking a little under the weather. All right. So, uh, you know, I want to do the reveal and I went old school today. I decided right. that, uh, it was time to channel some of the early days of, of crypto and Bitcoin. So yeah, I got mm. the orange pants on cause it you know, still is a bull market <laughs> and, uh, but I got the 2010 vintage. Wow. Of the Bitcoin uh, before it became orange in 2011, so way those back. Is it going to be worth something someday? Yeah, honestly. absolutely. If I, if I them the, keep them from getting holes in them.
0: Yeah, I don't know if uh, my grandparents always said whenever they saw something that was older than five years old, they'd be like, "That's going to be a collectible."
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. Like yeah, five years is probably the kinda... right answer. If it if it lives for five years, um, yeah. I saw you guys just tweeted out a picture of some beanie babies
0: the other day, so. Did you see that Beanie Mania? The documentary that Jason oh, yeah. was talking about. I lived yeah. it. I lived it. My nah. mom, not exaggerating,
1: my my mom had ten thousand Beanie mm. Babies. I mean, are you kidding me? Oh no, 10, no, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. She had them in clear plastic bins, sorted by color and animal, tucked under every bed in every closet. I mean, she was convinced it was going to be worth. A gazillion dollars, but uh, it was
0: pretty funny. Mm. All right, um, I want to get into it this week, and I've got a big idea that I want to discuss with you here. Um, and it's it's been an observation of mine, something uh, that I've wanted to talk about for a little while. I haven't really outlined my thesis on it here, but uh, start. There's a guy named uh, Peter Zeihan, who's a great geopolitical strategist, mm-hmm. and I listened to this uh, show that he did a couple years ago, and you made the observation that every uh, eighty or hundred or so years, political parties reform. They split and then they reform in the U.S. So if you go back to the founding, you know, of the U.S., uh, there were different political parties than we had today. We had the Republicans, we had the the Federalists, um, and it's funnily enough, the way it lined up, the Republicans would have been, you know, they're the spiritual uh, predecessors of today's Democrats and the Federalists. Well, I mean, in the fact, they were
1: originally called the Democratic
2: Republicans. That's what's so funny, right? Right? Is they yeah, literally had two names. Sorry about that. I'm not oh. sure how I missed it on my calendar.
1: Oh, Michael Green dropping in.
2: I love <laughs> it.
1: I love it. How are you doing? All right. Good. All right, fellas. Wow. Uh, Mark, how are you? I'm doing all right. Doing alright. I just, I mean I'm I'm uh, I'm struggling with a little uh, daycare cold, but other than that I'm doing great. Well, you're too old for daycare. No, my... yeah, I am too old to daycare. You're right. But uh, my one-year-old grandson uh does go to daycare on occasion. Um, oh,
2: but, that's uh, fantastic. I actually did a podcast with uh, Danielle Martino Booth where she asked me, like, what do you want to be doing in in a decade? And my immediate yeah, answer yeah. was, be a grandfather. So. There you go. No, it's, it's the best.
1: And the best is... So, not the only good thing, but one of the good things that came out of COVID was my... Uh, daughter and son-in-law and the two grandkids moved from Santa Monica back to Chapel Hill because of work from anywhere. So
2: awesome. Well, we we had a similar experience where all of our kids were basically brought back home. Our our oldest, who was in college, I mean, it's very unfortunate for him. It really screwed up his college experience, but it was great to have him back in the house. And it's uh, I, I I'm really grateful for that time. But a time together, yeah. We we are all very 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 lucky in that. Okay, so I've interrupted your podcast now.
0: No, no, man, you're good. Let's get going. You are coming <laughs> in in media race here, though. So uh, I'm gonna, I'll rewind uh, 15 seconds here uh, and just kind of lay out like the big idea that I wanted to cover with both of you, and I think it's going to be great because we might actually have opposing sides of the coin here. But uh, Mike, I was talking I, I,
2: about- I, Mike, not to be a, um, a troublemaker, but is your audio really low for you? Mark, is he coming through really quietly for you, or is it yeah, he just comes, really? He's
1: coming through quiet. I just have my my volume cranked.
0: Okay. They'll they'll uh, they'll they'll crank it on the post production, and we'll we'll get the volume Okay. Up. All right. Um, I just want
2: to make sure because it's just it's a little hard to hear you. So I'm going to turn my is volume Is it inconvenient? All right.
0: Cool. I would do it, but I, I've been told by production before not yeah, to change my volume Yeah, don't touch a button. I, I, yeah, I, I, I guess
2: that all the time too.
0: I can say, I mess everything. It's like everything I touch, yeah, I'm causing problems. Um, so to frame, to frame the big idea that I want to to cover with you guys is this observation that I've been having for a little while where, um, again, comes from Peter Zaihan. Uh, he originally got me thinking about this like a couple of years ago, but observation that political parties splinter and reform every 80 or so hundred years. Again, going back. Originally, um, you know, we had the Republicans and the Federalists, and they, they change uh, every couple of years. And one thing that I've noticed right now is that a lot of people are kind of viewing the world. I think political parties in the US are uh, splintering and beginning to reform. Maybe it was with Trump, maybe it was before that, whatever. But I think a lot of people are kind of viewing the world through this central idea of geopolitical competition between the US and our competitors, right? Maybe in the form of Russia and China. And I think if you view the world through that lens, then everything that accrues power to the United States is kind of, let's say, the lesser of two evils or the best cleaner shirt in the basket oh no, or whatever you want to phrase it. Everything wanna... that makes the US more powerful is good. It's good. Right. So that is good. And then anything that undermines power that the, that the United States has is bad. So Evil. I actually want to, I want to, I want to frame this actually. There's a great, this got uh, referred to me by a guy named Simon Mikhailovich. Uh, this was Dwight Eisenhower's farewell speech. And I'm going to be super annoying here, you guys. I'm just going to read these two paragraphs, but I thought it was so prescient. Uh, this was the speech that he coined the, the phrase the military-industrial complex. Um, Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there was a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A huge increase in newer elements of our defense, development of unrealistic programs to cure every ill in agriculture, a dramatic expansion in basic and applied research, these and many other possibilities, each possibly promising in itself, may be suggested as the only road to which we could travel. But each proposal must be weighed in the light of a broader consideration, the need to maintain balance in and among national programs, balance between the private and the public economy, balance between cost and hope for advantage balance, between the clearly necessary and the comfortably desirable. So the way that I interpret this phase is that I think right now there's there's a lot of struggle around, honestly, the financial system and to what degree the financial system can be used to affect global outcomes, right? Um, and I think the question is, in terms of precedence, is this something that we want, right? Do we want a big empire, a government to be able to control the financial system to um, to influence outcomes? So... However, however, you guys think, A, do you think that, that idea that I just kind of look – the lens at which to look at the world is this geopolitical competition and then B, you know, what would you say to, you know, giving powers to the United States to influence uh, kind of geopolitical international events through sanctions, et cetera. What do you guys think of that framing and, and where do you come down on it?
2: You want to Marco
1: go first, Pecun- Mark, or? <laughs> no, look, I mean, I, I say in it, <clears throat> inexorably yes. I mean, that's that's the plan. Mm-hmm. It's been the plan since 1913 with the creation of the Fed. And it, it was manifested in Bretton Woods in 44. And it is the plan. I mean, the, the plan is uh, to weaponize the financial system for our benefit. It's why we cut the deal in 74 with Saudi and said, yeah, we'll protect you. Yep. Here's the deal. You price all oil transactions globally in dollars. And we'll protect you no matter what you do to us. We'll we'll protect you. Um, And that has been going on for for decades. Uh, And and anyone who's threatened that hegemony disappeared. Saddam Hussein said, I'm going to price oil in euros. Gone. Qaddafi, I'm going to do it in gold. Gone. Russia says, we're going to price in rubles. Oh, you have nukes. China, I'm going to price in renminbi. Oh, you have nukes. So it works Up until the point that your adversary has nuclear weapons, then you can't take them out. And so we have to try what we're trying right now, which is and we've tried this twice before, right? People think this is the first time we've tried to neutralize Russia. You know, Russian stock market's been down ninety-five percent three times in my career, which is you know, I'm old, but I'm not that old.
2: I, I so I might read it slightly differently. Right. And I think what Eisenhower was ultimately saying is the equivalent of the Hippocratic oath, first do no harm, right? Mm. And resist the temptation to try to solve the problem simply because you think you might have a solution, right? Um, I, I think that's the more important takeaway here, which is in many situations, there's nothing you can do. And there's a humility that you should bring to a problem that says, If I try to solve the immediate issue, am I creating a much bigger and longer-term problem? And that's what I've been trying to highlight in the developments that are going forward. Right? I mean, we've taken a society that is extraordinarily frayed, where the political dynamics of, you know, how we reacted to COVID um, have fractured our. Uh, society further than it already was, and have politicized basically any comment. If Donald Trump said wearing masks was good, then it was bad, and you know flip it in the reverse, right, in both situations. Um, this is, I think, very similar, where we're trying to take a very, very complex question. What is the role of Ukraine? What is the role of the United States in Europe? What is the role of international law? in addressing issues like a Russian invasion of Ukraine or regime change. And we're trying to create very simplistic answers to it, right? So, I mean, uh, uh, there was a phenomenal headline that I wish I'd I'd captured and, and highlighted, but it was something along the lines of Putin must go. His attempts at regime change in Ukraine are unacceptable, it's like wait, wait a second. Okay, so we're gonna do regime change in Russia because his attempts at regime change in Ukraine. Yeah, exactly. Are yeah, right. I
1: mean, this is- and, and Iraq and yeah, exactly. Libya right. and Afghanistan and Syria right. and Nicaragua. I mean, we go back for seventy-five yeah, uh, years. We've
2: engaged in regime change a few times, right? So, <laughs> part part of part of what. I think is so frustrating about what's going on to me is the willingness to rush into solutions simply because we think that that it's impossible for us to stand there and not do anything. Right. Right. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think that broadly applies across a lot of stuff. Right. I, I just did a podcast with Grant Williams where Bill Fleckenstein was pushing me pretty hard on, you know, the, the Fed needs to have more humility the Fed needs to, you know, um, you know, stop screwing the system up. And and my point is that the Fed is doing the best that it can, given the situation as it exists and the fact that nobody else is actually willing to address the fundamental inconsistencies and flaws in the system that you've heard me talk about ad nauseum. Um And so they're basically trapped. They're the doctor who has somebody screaming at them, my child can't breathe, do something, right? And so they perform an emergency tracheotomy with an unclean knife and, you know, a a straw from the parking lot in McDonald's, right? Is it, I I have terrible analogies, right? But the, (laughs) the reality is, is that's what we're doing. We're performing a tracheotomy with a, you know, Swiss army knife and a straw, by shutting Russia off, we're now actually seeing things like the euro dollar sofer spread blow out. You know, I alluded to this earlier, like we're fishing with dynamite. We have no idea what's coming to the surface. Oh, and it's, it's so, I can't agree with everything you said, but I
1: think it's even so much worse in that we, we, we don't seem to understand, I, I do say math, but but it's really not, it's it's counting. It's basic accounting. Right? It's it's the same nonsense of canceling student loans. No, just because it's one person's liability, it's someone else's asset. No. And if you cancel one side of the transaction, you are canceling the other side. And you know what? Look, look at the pension fund in Kentucky that's taken all this. Oh my God! How could a pension fund? Ha-? Okay, point one percent was point one percent of their assets. Was in Spare Bank. And it just got vaporized. So they lost $13 million. Now, not that $13 million is going to change a $10 billion fund, but that didn't have to happen. Um and I just find the whole and you got people criticizing them on Twitter. You shouldn't be allowed as a US pension fund to invest in a Russian bank. Are you kidding me? On on what on what grounds would you make that statement? Just nonsense.
2: Well, I I also think that so there, there you know there is a mixture of these components right and obviously Mark and I are on opposite sides of the spectrum as it relates to the appropriateness or attractiveness in investing in some types of assets right and that's by the way part of what makes a market Mark and I I can disagree vehemently about the role of Bitcoin or crypto or anything else and still go for a drink afterwards and not spend any time worrying about it on an interpersonal basis right that's a skill set that we've all developed trading in markets for a very long period of time. if we are at war with somebody i completely agree that kentucky should not you know be able to buy russian bonds in the same way that i would have looked at them buying nazi bonds and saying are you kidding me but that's not what we've done we have abrogated our responsibility as a political class to say no this is what's going to happen and in the absence of that it's completely absurd to expect corporations or pension fund administrators and and CIOs, et cetera, to make those choices. This is just completely insane that because we're unwilling to make the hard choices at the political level that we then turn around and are like, oh, they should have known better. They shouldn't be allowed. And we try to change it from a regulatory framework. I, I just think it's absurd. We've got it completely backwards. We've got a chattering political class that is unwilling to actually make a stand for what it believes in and instead continues to be Behaving on a system of convenience that I just think is insane. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Let, let me ask you guys, just, just high level. I mean, the the amount and the severity of the sanctions surrounding Russia right now are pretty I don't want to say unprecedented because that word is just thrown around a lot, but certainly pretty severe in love, love sanctions. What are your thoughts on that policy choice, not just from the US, but but globally as well? Do you think it's ultimately going to be an effective and successful policy?
2: So my my, my quick Takeaway is is that we're in this weird situation where it's the doctor performing emergency surgery without necessarily having all the facts that are available, right? Is this a clear violation of international law? Absolutely. Are sanctions called for? Absolutely. Are the unprecedented part of sanctions where we actually take Russian property in the form of foreign reserves and functionally steal them right um not that is, actually yeah actually steal them but theoretically we could return them to a future administration but but it is a, it is an extraordinary action the idea that switzerland managed to flip off neutrality in the space of three days when it did not do so in world war II, like this is right, yeah. truly unprecedented not to throw around the word but it is really actually unprecedented behavior that is setting the stage for a complete reordering of the system, and unfortunately, as we're seeing, Russia is now being forced into the arms of China as a tributary, as compared as a client state, as compared to a marriage of convenience and equals, near equals, based on trading relationships. All we've done is created North Korea times ten.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think the the other thing that that's just so. That's the only word I can come up with, is this idea that we've normalized over the past couple months, this idea of government uh, omnipotence, that they, they, they have the ability to seize anything they so desire. I mean, the idea that a German government or a French government seizes a Russian citizen
2: asset. It's, it's insane. It's truly insane. I, I, I. In, the, in the absence of an actual declaration of war, which we all know is not coming precisely because, as Mark pointed out, there are nuclear power and we're terrified of the escalation. Um, you know, actually, I'm going to flip that and say what we will almost certainly do is declare war after we've won. right Right. thereof right and say you know the cost to the global economy was such that russia has to forfeit 450 billion of the 650 billion in reserves right you you can smell that coming um the desire for retribution is extraordinary and and like this will make me even more unpopular than i already am in some circles but the simple reality is is that Playground bullies and schoolyard bullies are dangerous and unliked, and you don't want to screw around with them, but they rarely kill people because they've actually got experience in exercising their physical power, right? So what Putin did, I'm not excusing it, I'm not defending it, but what he did was a, initially a measured action to install regime change without destroying Ukraine because he recognized that he would have to bear the costs of rebuilding it. Mm -hmm. And the West interpreted that as um, he's incompetent, he's a moron, he's gone insane. And as a result, effectively, the band members, you know, all piled on and started beating the schoolyard bully with a tuba, right? Like, they don't know how to actually, they don't know the power that they're actually exercising. What's terrifying to me is the extent of what we are doing how quickly we're doing it. And you know, everyone forgets that policy is this dynamic. It's like changing the temperature, you know, in a on a shower that's 30 stories away from the hot water heater. It takes time. If you keep cranking up the heat, by the time it gets to you, there's gonna be a point where you're gonna scald yourself. And I, I would argue we're scalding ourselves right now. Yeah, I completely
1: agree. And but but it's not surprising to me, right? American exceptionalism has been building for a while. Uh, I think the, see, here's the weird thing for me, just when, when Bush was proximate to the Cheney presidency, I knew who to be afraid of, right? Mm -hmm. I knew Bush wasn't the president, but at least I knew that Cheney was, was a bad dude and that I could, I could fear him and that everyone else should too. I don't know who's in charge now. Certainly ain't Biden, and it certainly ain't Harris. I mean, Russia is a country in Europe. It's a large country. And it, I mean, what? I mean, is this Sesame Street or? I mean, the vice president of the most powerful country in the world. So, I mean, no offense, but yeah, offense. I mean, that's just crazy. So, yeah. I I just don't know who to be afraid of, and I and that 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 worries me. That there is some greater organization pulling strings. And, and look, if, if I'm Vladimir Putin, which I'm not, but if I were, I would not want missiles on my border. I would not want Ukraine in NATO. Just like we didn't want Russia in Cuba. There was no crisis. Remember? I mean, you know, Michael, no. little Michael, no. I mean, young Michael, uh, not little Michael, young Michael. Um, not to imply that you're big, Mike.
2: Um, no, I, I, no nor am I quite that old. But uh, <laughs> but yes, I, I do know the, the the situation you were referring to as well as Michael Lipolito. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I I agree with you. And unfortunately, again, we're in this cancel culture type framework where you and I are taking remarkable risks by saying anything along the lines right. of you know, right? Maybe it's complicated. Right. Um, you know, right now, the narrative is how can you possibly question the, the heroics of Zelensky? Um, clearly, you know, this is who we should be doing. I, I, you know, I commented to somebody the other day and repeated it on Twitter, like this is statecraft policy as if it was run by Ernest Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it, it, you know, hey, let's rush off from Paris and drive down to Madrid and rent a hotel room for all for us and all the other artists you know, so that we can report on it and then join up in the in in the fight against you know um, Franco. I mean, one, it's not helpful, right? And two, it's probably going to make things worse in the long run, which is absolutely what we're seeing. And and what Zelensky is doing in almost any other situation, like if if this were somebody that the US was not allied with, we'd say he's creating, you know, he's using citizens as human shields. Mm -hmm. He's forcing people to serve in the military. He's doing, you know, X, Y, Z, like men are not allowed to leave Ukraine. Men are being armed, you know, untrained civilians are being armed with automatic weapons. Criminals are being released and armed, right? Like this is catastrophic policymaking that reflects basically, this is the end of the world. And what it really is, is the end of the Ukrainian democratic regime. I'm not suggesting there's nothing noble about it. I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't be trying their best. But man, this, you know, relentless cheerleading on the side is creating the real risk for true human catastrophe. And we are unwilling to actually stop it from happening, right? We're basically saying some variant of, yeah, go for it, man. Totally, totally, fight, fight, fight. And we're basically throwing dollar bills into the ring.
1: Yeah, and again, at the risk of of being canceled. And I've tweeted this out a bunch of times. What if that's the plan? That's what actually terrifies me. What if this is all the plan? And that, that, you know, the depopulation stuff is not fake news. It's, I mean, there's some scary stuff out there Mm. and some of the actions that are going on, if you looked at them logically, you'd say that that makes no sense. But if you looked at them from a different perspective with a different end game, it's a shit,
2: huh? Okay. Yeah. And, and and I kind of fall into the category, and you and I know a lot of the same people, and you and I interact with these individuals in some situations, particularly those in government in the United right. States, much less right. so those in Europe. Um, although you and I have had interactions with them, um, I, you know, I just fall into the category that says if you go and talk to the World Economic Forum, you don't actually have to join a conspiracy. <laughs> But the fact that you're sympathetic to the general idea that people themselves have no idea what they're doing and need this sort of intervention and guidance on a regular basis biases policy in the direction of what looks like conspiracy, even if it's not actually coordinated, right? I just think we have a bunch of people in charge who truly believe that they are better, right? And that, you know, Justin Trudeau
1: thinks that he is better than everybody else in the truckers. Correct. Yes. Everybody in Canada. Forget, forget just the truckers.
2: Everybody. I mean, you understood what I understand, then you would make decisions like I'm making. Therefore, I'm going to make them for you. Right. Like that sort of arrogance is the core of what's actually sitting in front of us. And part of what you've heard me talk about over and over and over again is the 500 years, give or take that we have had a the opportunity to remove ourselves from the emperor, right? The Chinese proverb, uh, the mountains are high and the emperor is far away, was given real weight by the ability to emigrate to the new world, right? The ability to get out of Europe and to say, you know what, screw this. Um, I don't like the way things are going. I'm going to take the personal risk, pick up, travel across an ocean, go to America, and there's this giant expanse in which nobody really owns it. And I can lay claim to my yeah. own home and castle and behave in my own independent way. That created real pressure on policymaking. It's gone. It's totally gone. Where yeah. are you going to go? Yeah. Well, and, and that's a great
1: point, right, is, is the closure of all the borders. Um, but also this, this idea of uh, humility. You, know, you mentioned at the very beginning of the conversation, it's just gone. It's gone everywhere. I mean, it's it's gone in in policymakers. It's gone in uh, central bankers. I mean, I, I just I love the pictures of of the health ministers. Who are these gigantic people? You're know, like, why would I take health advice from you? <laughs> I mean, why why would I do that? And you know, and and you look at at you know Lagarde and and. You know, why would I listen to a guy like Draghi, right? Who's part of the cabal when he, when he literally says out loud in, in, in public, right? If you are unvaccinated, you are not part of the society. Our, you're not part of our society. But who, who says that? That, that's arrogance beyond, beyond belief, right? And that arrogance, what I say, pride goeth before the fall. I mean, yep. every empire, ultimately, I believe, and my, well, you could, you could check me on this. I believe every empire in history falls from the same uh, misplaced arrogance, right?
2: Well, so, so actually, and this is part of where I would push back a little bit, and I'm not checking that per se, because I do actually agree with that. But part of the point, and Michael's heard me talk about this over and over and over again, is when you, it's not that the empire is falling, right? It's that the democracy is falling, right? Okay. The people's ability to participate. And okay. so if I go back and I look at the transition, and people have heard me talk about this over and over and over again, and I can't recommend enough reading up on the period of transition from the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire, right? And remember that the power of the Roman people peaked. More than 100 years after that, right? So somewhere around 110 AD versus the fall of the Roman Republic in 44 BC. Um, so I, I, like, what is happening is the same thing that you saw emerge in that time period, where an elite class is increasingly incapable of questioning itself under the humility framework that you're identifying. And yet, ironically, increasingly impoverished to the point that they find themselves forced to take the handouts from the extraordinarily wealthy and influential in order to maintain their position in society right yes. The temptation for yes. corruption is exploding yes as the cost of living truly well is rising dramatically and every politician is doing some variant of nancy pelosi or robert kaplan and saying yeah, well, I kind of deserve this for the work that I'm doing for our society. Oh, I mean, to that point. And and this is not,
1: I'm not picking sides. I mean, people probably know what side I fall on, but, you know, one of the most amazing things I've ever heard is when somebody says, yeah, Ms. Pelosi, do do you think it's okay that you're blocking legislation that helps Visa and MasterCard when you and your husband are large shareholders? Of course, it's part of my compensation. It's like, no, no it's not part of your compensation um but she's convinced herself that that it is and, and your point others have as well and it's it's I think I, it's a really interesting point, Mike, that it is been foisted upon them by the the increasing demands and and a smaller scale when I first came down to North Carolina, so I, you know I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, as we refer to it affectionately the People's Republic of Chapel Hill. When I first came here, you know, I worked at, at the university and there is this elite class inside the university, a handful of administrators and then a board that's hand selected and pushed through the power structure. And it's all about this. And this friend of mine said, you know, it's it's because they live a country club lifestyle on a bureaucrat salary. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. He says, look, look at their paneled offices and their fancy university cars and their second house on the beach. And who do you think pays for that? The politicians. And yeah. I'm like, wow,
2: that's really
1: interesting. I
2: yeah. want to, I, I, I unfortunately think that's very much the, the underlying dynamic that exists and it goes to the elements of entitlement and everything else. Right. And so the, right. the, Ultimate irony is these same politicians to turn around and tell us to check our privileges, to tell us to be aware of how entitled we are, et cetera, right? Um, You know, again, I know, you know, you and I have had very different experiences than the average American. Um, The statistic, I raised my kids in New York City, right? The statistic came out while we were there and it's gone up since, but, you know, it was something along the lines of, to feel truly comfortable and not have to worry about money in Manhattan required you to have something like $87 million in the bank, right? Oh now, I've done very well. But Mark, <coughs> you know, we don't have $87 million sitting in the bank, right? Yeah. Um, and moving to California in some ways dropped that probably to $40 million, right? I mean, like these are insane numbers when you mm-hmm. think about it. But it creates this very weird dynamic where even those who have been extraordinarily successful within the 1% feel this stress, feel this demand to cut corners, feel this demand, you know, this issue within their own families to say, well, I can't really be as principled about it because I have to get mine, yeah. right? Okay. I have to yeah. protect those who are closest yeah. to me. Yeah. And I really genuinely, I mean, you mentioned Nancy Pelosi saying that, You know, on the flip side, whatever his name is, Madison Cawthorn, you know, said the exact same thing, right? The exact same thing. Of course, we should be allowed to trade as members of Congress on, on you know, uh, stocks that are related to us. Like, it's just bizarre. It's completely, completely bizarre. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot
0: of fast growing crypto native funds, crypto banks, exchanges and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry leading technology. doesn't matter if you're a two person crypto fund or a 2000 person crypto exchange. These guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you and then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out, click the link at the bottom of this episode, tell my I, I I want to zoom in on, on a point that you had that period of time that you're talking about this transition from the uh, Republic to the Empire of Rome. There's a really good book on that if yep. uh, nerds out there want to read uh, called Rubicon, uh, which is really good. It's about Caesar's yep. crossing of the Rubicon. So that was this is yep. I just bang on this point all the time when you're talking about government and peoples, you have to look at it through the lens of precedent, i.e. if a government does something one time, am I OK with doing that? ad infinitum into the future. Caesar was not the first guy to actually cross the Rubicon. There was a guy before him called Sulla, and he actually did bring armies into Rome, killed like 20,000 people, 25,000 people, but then he returned power to the to the republic. But the next guy was Caesar. He did it like 80 years later. He did not return the power, and then it was a permanent transition. So let's take two instances here that were the Canadian truckers and Trudeau and some of the um you know, the freezing of the bank accounts that happened there. And then let's take what's going on with Russia and these unprecedented sanctions. My question to you guys is one, do you see those as being interrelated, right? Do you see those as being very similar principles, right? People controlling the financial system. And you look at that and some people would say, that's great what they're doing up in Canada. Like those, you know, anti-vaxxers, yeah, get them out of there, freeze them out of the banking system. Some people would say, no, absolutely not. That's not very good. And then some people would look at Russia and say, that's great freeze them out. We don't want to send our troops in there. Like, let's just get them out of the system. I think you people look at it as in like, do I agree with this political issue and not should someone, should anyone have the power to do this? So my question to you guys is A, do you see those two things as being interrelated and B, what is the eventuality of the control of the financial system that we're seeing? Like, what do you see the logical outcome being here? That's a leading question because I have an idea, but uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah.
1: Okay. I think they're absolutely inextricably linked. I think they are two sides of the same coin. Um, and, and I think they are my, my own opinion is, is they are precipitated by all the things that we'll talk about later. Um, you know, and why I'm wearing my, you know, Bitcoin 2010 socks today. Uh, in 2009, a very important thing happened and the creation of a uncensorable, unseizable asset created a threat, a real threat, not just a a theoretical threat, but a real threat to this hegemony that had been, you know, the, the claim of governments for Millennia—I mean, not even centuries—millennia—and now suddenly there is a real because you know in the old and olden days where money really wasn't a big deal. Each local place had their own money, and there was no global currency. Um, it was just about military might, standing armies, and and the ability to go knock off you know the local town uh, or the neighboring town. Then we went through a period from the 1400s to today <coughs> where it was about naval superiority and, um, you know, dollar hedge or, or world reserve currency status. And those countries literally ruled the world, right? so sun never sat on the British Empire for you know, 80 years. Um, and, and now I think there is this fear. And I think fear is the right word. There's a fear at the elite level of this borderless, nation-stateless wealth. And when it was a science, and we've talked about this, right? 2009 to 2015, first they ignore you. Science experiment, crazy people, anarchists, you guys are idiots, yeah, whatever. 2016 to 21, then they laugh at you. Oh, look at a bunch of nerds and their, their little fancy computer toy. At a trillion dollars and now multiple trillion across all digital assets, it's no longer a, a, you know, uh, hypothetical threat. It's, it's a real threat. And I, I, I personally think that's what's accelerating these types of moves and, now, I actually don't believe that that you know I think had uh people donated to the truckers the old fashioned way right sending checks in the mail, they would have just seized the mail from the post office, so the government would have you know done whatever they had to do, and they probably would have found a way to seize the bank accounts eventually too but um i I think that that I think evil people will do evil stuff, but I do think there's a inextricable link now to this migration to self-sovereignty. And that's not in the plan. That is not in the WEF playbook.
2: So I I, I don't think it's in the, um, so this is where Mark and I disagree on Bitcoin, right? Um, I actually ironically think the idea that it is uncensorable is deeply wrong. And the reason why is it's the same way that Twitter is deeply uncensorable. I can write whatever I want on Twitter, but they can very quickly ban me, pull me out, et cetera, because it's identified with a particular login, right? They can't physically harm me, but they can cut me out of a system in which I've accumulated an asset and a resource and the problem that i have with the blockchain and bitcoin as it's set up is that it's uncensorable in the form that we just saw cancellation right we can lock you out of the rest of the system we can lock you out of the ability to hold on to it and this is part of what i've highlighted from the very beginning on this is saying look it is the single best mechanism for raising your hand and saying guess what i'm seditious right now that doesn't make that bad. It just makes that particular implementation of that expression of freedom, not particularly effective. And there's a broader issue in terms of the attractiveness of bearer assets, right? The real value to cash is I can hold cash in my pocket. I can transfer that to my son. I can transfer it to my gardener. I can transfer it to anybody that I want under a certain quantity. And have the government completely incapable of monitoring. As we've moved online, that's become more difficult. And so there's absolutely a role for that in an online system. We need to have that type of uncensorable um, exchange instrument that allows me to, without concern of who's monitoring me, make the smaller purchases in life that allow me to have influence through how a a, um, free market system is supposed to work and use money for what it's supposed to do, which is to express my preferences for how I want to consume or save, Mm -hmm. right? My biggest concern with Bitcoin is one, it's not good at doing that, right? Unless I take steps that then immediately say I'm basically trying to be as criminal as possible by actively concealing it. Um, and, and by the way, I don't think you necessarily have to be actively criminal to want to conceal that stuff, but you've allied yourself with instruments and vehicles that make their money by facilitating that. Uh, what I would prefer to see, and I may be completely, you know, Michael's referred to me as more hopeful on this, and perhaps I'm just deluded. But what I would hope <laughs> is that we're actually able as a society to come together and say, hey, this is actually a really important feature of capital allocation, that people are able to make small, reasonable purchases without worrying if the government is watching what they're doing, without having it affect my social credit score, et cetera, that I'm buying something that the government doesn't like. Right? That's a really important feature of a system that is gonna remain robust because it allows small scale voting on a continuous basis. But because we've created crypto as so hostile to the existing system, you can't stop us. We're creating the conditions under which the natural reaction function is to introduce a CBDC, which is the direction that this is going, in a far more authoritarian framework.
0: I have I have a couple of thoughts listening to that, Mike. Um, you're reminding me of a conversation I had with someone actually a couple of years ago, uh, just in terms of how you affect change in general in society, and. Um, yeah, you know, I think I think there's a probably a from my perspective a mistaken perception where it's like, <laughs> hey, we'll like play ball with you. We're going to do this in a way that's not disruptive. And I think just like civil rights movements, I think just like protests, you actually do need some of that. Hey, I got to get in your face and cause problems. And you need hard headed. like honestly, if you go back and look at significant change that's been established. How do you imagine, put yourself in the 1700s in like a bar in Boston or New York. How do you think the revolutionaries sounded? Honestly, do you think they were like measured and like, hey, we should be working? I honestly think for big step changes, and what we're talking about is a big step change, right? Freedom in terms of sovereign money. You actually need those kind of hard, I don't think you actually accomplish change by just saying, hey, we'll totally work with you and yada, yada. So I think the way change actually gets affected is by some of that stuff that just rubs people a little bit the wrong way, and say, "Hey, this is like too extreme." But I ultimately think that's how change happens um, at the level that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, and I, I guess I, I go and you know, we always go to our, our sinister Saturday since this gets released <laughs> on Saturday. Uh, look, I, I I don't I don't think anything Mike said is no, I is exactly. crazy. I think I think the I think the the crazy comes from the fact that the people who want to create those CBDCs are sinister. They, they have no interest in working with the masses. They, they want social scoring. They want you, – you've heard. I mean we've all seen the, the, the picture of Jabba the Hutt or what, – what's the guy from Spider-Man into the metaverse, the, the big giant guy? Uh, we've, been here, we've been here before. Kingpin. Kingpin. So he, he doesn't look like Jabba. He looks like Kingpin. So we've all seen Kingpin saying, well, of course we should control – when or or even if you get to spend your money. That's absolutely sinister. Absolutely sinister. I mean, imagine working all week and you get your money and you jaywalk that day. Ding you five cents, 5%. So now you got 95 cents in the dollar. Oh, well, you want to buy some, some cannabis. It just happens to be it's not legal nationally. So, so that's another 10%. And, you know, you you know, had an affair. And you know, we, now, even though we all have affairs, but we don't,
0: we don't prove. I'm assuming so, Mrs. Yuska doesn't you know. listen to this podcast. Um,
2: no, yeah. no, 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 she does and And, and
0: it's funny, I was, I was actually telling the story. Any
2: one person I know who is, who, who's safe oh, in right. that assertion yeah. is Mark. So we're, we're, yeah, exactly. we're good there. Yeah, we're sure good. good. He's I'm a just wonderful just man. <laughs> just yeah,
1: well, wonderful. no, no. I mean, well, I know that the, my choice is to live <laughs> or die. So, no. but the crazy thing is, I, I we just found out this, this past week. Um, this kid from uh, this woman from uh, my wife's grade school class in Oklahoma. Um, Husband had second family and he died unexpectedly, no life insurance, no nothing. And she has like $1,200 to her name. It's like, Oh my God. I mean, wow. I mean, that that's like, that's like right out of a dime store novel, but it was real life. So, so, but I, I just think that that this idea that I'm from the government, I'm here to help. No, so I I don't disagree with you, Mike, at all on um, there are elements of the way Bitcoin evolved that make it inferior for the bare asset uses that you talk about. Right? Have it in my pocket. Give it to my kid. Give it to the barber. Absolutely um you know venmo works for that and other things bitcoin works too but but it, it it's it's not as superior what what it does for me right the reason i own it is i i live in the fiat world i spend i pay my bills in fiat i get paid in fiat but i take a portion and i move it into my opt out in the event that i wake up one day, and it's Cyprus. I mean, oh, I thought I had a dollar. Now I have twenty five cents. And that that piece of life that we just saw happen in in uh, Canada, we just saw happen with Russian citizens. Again, Russian citizens have done nothing wrong. I mean, it, it, I mean, literally, do you think our bank account should be frozen because our president? decided to bomb some country?
2: I, it, I actually, I completely agree with everything that you're saying. right? And as you know, this is part of the reason why you and I are able to have a rational and productive conversation around Bitcoin, whereas many of the dynamics that I'm in, many of the conversations that I'm involved with with Bitcoin appear irrational, precisely because my concern <laughs> is not... With somebody who says, you know, I'm going to take one percent, two percent, three percent, and set it aside in this insurance policy that's similar to gold, is you know basically a bet to see if the system is going to fall apart. And as you know, I've actually introduced financial products that allow people to do that in a responsible and thoughtful way.
0: Yeah.
2: The issue that I have with this space is that you're the minority, and the yeah, there's the some maxies more- out there. Dynamic, where somebody like a Michael Saylor is saying to people, "Mortgage your house and buy Bitcoin," is so deeply criminal and irresponsible that I cannot tolerate it. Right? It's just I, I wouldn't tell you to mortgage your house and buy the S and P five hundred. Right? Like I, I, yeah, but I, you I, should have, and I should. Have. And here's the thing: this is oh, Michael. This is interesting.
1: I believe the people our age and i'm older than you but but people our age Better looking too but that's okay uh, we we suffer we suffer from and maybe i shouldn't speak for you i'll speak for me people of my generation suffer from a, an inability to believe that the system would be so rigged that that is good advice mortgage your house as much as you possibly can and buy the S&P because the plutocrats are going to ensure that the interest rate on your mortgage goes down and that the value of your assets goes up by devaluing the currency. I miss that, right? I mean, I have never, not never, I think I had one in the 35 years of owning homes I've only had one variable rate mortgage and the entire 35 years rates have gone down because I grew up in a time where we had just lived through 22% interest rates and we feared, you know, you I've had this discussion Um, and, and it sucks, right? The people who won over the last 20 years are the people who abused the savers and screwed The retirees and borrowed as much as they possibly could and bought speculative assets. So I'm not saying that sailors right per se, but I'm just saying it is crazy that mortgage your house and buy the S and P for 20 years has actually
0: been incredible. I had a a situation happen to me. Well, like and it pisses me off. A couple months ago, uh, sorry, Jesus, over a year ago, uh, I I got asked to do like a um, just talk to. Ex girlfriends, moms, like coffee group or whatever about Bitcoin. And there were actually some people who were really knowledgeable, like people who had a background in finance, and like explaining the basic core concepts. And it actually came up within like the first two minutes. This guy who's been in finance his entire career, he's like, "Well, why wouldn't I want the Federal Reserve? They've been looking out for me." He literally just said it. He was like, "Why would I not want the Federal Reserve? They've been looking out for me my entire my entire career." I'm paraphrasing barely, yeah. and I was just like, "I was just like, wow, that's yeah, you know, I actually really." It was enlightening for me because I was just like, that is a guy who's had a completely different lived experience than my lived experience where I actually yeah. don't uh, feel particularly looked yeah. out for by that institution. I think everyone could benefit from actually talking to different people of different uh, generations and just – you you would get an understanding of like yeah. there are things that you guys both probably assume to be fact and solid and you think everyone else thinks that are totally different from how I think and vice versa. So this was a really interesting one where it's just like, wow, I was um, – that's actually really interesting to hear. I don't think like that. Uh sorry, Mike, I interrupted you. Yeah.
2: No. Um, so I, I think there's a couple of things that and this is of course, you know, the stuff that, that I spend a disproportionate amount of time on, right? So like I don't actually think that there's a conspiracy to inflate the Fed, to inflate the S&P 500, or that that was predictable and understandable in a way that is tied back to the Fed, right? Likewise, the decline in mortgage rates, um, I don't think was a intentional policy choice that we set out upon and ended up here, right? Um, I would argue that the system itself that has shifted from one of shared social insurance and responsibility where we know our neighbors and we don't allow our neighbors to starve and we live near our families and those who are near us in our community care. We yeah. replace that with a diffuse system in which we said um, every person is on their own, right? You have a 401k, you're responsible for how to allocate it. You buy a house, you, Mortgage it, not because you're trying to speculate and reserve those assets for the S&P 500, but because you're trying to capitalize yourself being short housing and convert that, the relatively limited sums that you can save early in life and turn that into a home that you can then occupy at fixed rates for an extended period of time. This is part of the reason why, why you know, uh, Mark, like most people, chose to go with a fixed rate mortgage, right? Right. I don't think that the system is inherently set up to be venal, but I do think that it is predictable that if we continually step in and try to bail out a system that treats collective insurance and treats a social contract as inherently evil, right, that we're going to end up in this situation because the only time you respond is when a crisis emerges and crisis threatens the system. And the system has to preserve itself. And so you engage in the actions that are required to sustain the system in the same way that Zelensky is behaving in a way to preserve the system as it exists in Ukraine with him in charge. Right. Even though that may be a long term harm that is being created. So I I don't see the intelligence operating behind the scenes in a Machiavellian way. I think the system has been set up to be really screwed up. And I I would encourage you guys, like I I put out a tweet today that highlighted this dynamic. You know, Mark, the real asset that you had when you graduated 10 years before I did that still existed when I graduated was there was a dramatic shortage of knowledge workers in the economy. Those who had been Mm -hmm. through college, who had the skill set to approach the white collar world with a degree of um, capability in math, with a degree of capability in social skills, with an awareness of computers, etc., was small enough that there was functionally a vacuum that sucked us up in our success pattern. Yep. Right. Today, that's just no longer the case. And if I look at things like labor force participation rates for those with college degrees or more accurately, the most important metric is employment to population ratios for those with college degrees that's fallen from north of 80 percent to roughly 70% today, right? We're looking at a situation where those who have college degrees were told that the unalloyed good was to get a college degree because that was going to lead to success. And what we've done is we've loaded them with debt and put them into a system in which those skills are not particularly valued because everybody now has a college degree. 50% of the population has a college degree. 70% of the population attends college regardless of their capability to handle the higher order learning that you benefit from in college. Mm -hmm. Right. Like this is almost by definitionally dumb. Half the population is going to have below average IQ. That's not a judgment on race. That's not a judgment on a skill set. It's not a judgment on the eventual outcomes, but it's a fact. Right. And so what we did was we created a system in which those who are completely incapable of making an informed judgment about the potential opportunities that exist for them graduating from a tertiary education are loaded with debt, primarily because they didn't even graduate they couldn't handle the course load but they retained the obligation right and who doesn't retain any obligation associated with it the college college yeah right they should be absolutely taking first loss capital if they were doing it we'd have more thoughtful institutions we'd have more thoughtful programs we'd have more thoughtful behaviors i like it but that's not the federal reserve right the federal reserve is left to clean up because nobody else wants to be a responsible adult and they're not capable of addressing the vast majority of the problems that we have. No, I like
1: it. I mean, I love it. It's 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 Lambda school, right? You know, your education is free, and then you pay them a portion of your salary if you get a job above fifty thousand dollars. I love that model, right? Uh I mean you're investing in people and you would be incented
2: to produce good workers, whatever those workers are. And what you know is that you would have engineering programs grow, you would yes. have math programs yes. grow, you would have computer yes. science programs grow, and you'd see French medieval literature shrink, right? I mean, As why, sad as that would be, as sad as that would be, yes. I, I'm, I'm not okay. particularly worried okay. about the world losing access okay. to, you know, scholars of Proust, right? Um, the, the, the reality is, is you look back at the dynamics of things like a fine arts degree, right? Now, why does that even exist? That exists basically so that the extremely wealthy children of extremely wealthy people can figure out ways to decorate their apartments, right? I sound like a jerk, and I am a jerk. Mark's known no. Me no, long no but you're Michael, I, I've
1: heard this. I've heard this line that I, 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 I have to admit, I, I heard that you know the American education, higher education system, is sanctioned for your unemployment. Explain what you mean by that that we as a society sanctioned oh, having we a because in every that. other in every other country in the world, those people show up as unemployed. We don't yeah. count them as unemployed if yeah. they're in college. And so we hide a whole bunch of people in the system. And to your point, the super wealthy. And yeah, I, I, I talk about, you know, I, I'm involved in, in my alma mater. I'm involved in a scholarship program and I see a lot of kids. I interview a lot of kids and – um. Yeah, there's a whole bunch that they're not there in any way, shape, or form to learn and grow and 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 become a productive member of society. They are, to your point, they are there because mom and dad are paying for it. And I'm at a party five nights a week, and maybe I'll go to a couple classes if it's something cool. Um. And and look, I'm I'm all about. Some liberal arts majors I, I believe investing in particular is is the last liberal arts, so I think you know philosophy history many of the literature probably not but but philosophy history i actually think are are pretty good training uh to to be a knowledge worker but uh engineering math science i mean i'm a science guy by by training i mean that's what i studied um and i actually think the scientific method is is what allowed me to transition into the world I live in now because everything we do is about forming a hypothesis, gathering the data, testing the hypothesis, coming up with whether the hypothesis is good or bad, starting all over again. That's everything you do with investing. And my favorite line from Bill
0: Duhamel, you know, with every investment we get richer or wiser, uh, never Well good. as 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 a guy who's gone to college probably slightly more recently than the two of you, and I had I had two different liberal arts majors, I, I kind of agree with you, but I also think a lot of what you're learning in college is actually how to think in critical analysis and that kind of thing. But I, I think it's criminal how expensive it is in the US. Well, you look like. You're...
2: So I, I'm, I'm going to, let me just push back on that for a second, Michael. And I actually agree with you. And I, and I agree by the way with what um, Mark is saying in terms of philosophy, right? My, my oldest son is a philosophy major and I've been very clear to him. As long as you treat it as computer science mm-hmm. for your brain, I'm totally fine with it right? If you want to learn how you think, if you want to learn the biases that exist, if you want to learn the capacity for rationalization and forming poor arguments and treat human beings as programmable computers, I am 100% behind this. But if I discover that you're doing this because you basically want to sit and read Kierkegaard, like then we have a problem, right? Um, And I've got nothing against Kierkegaard per se, right? But... But you do. It's okay. I do. Right. Um, The the broader point that I would, would make is you tend to find that the most skilled contributors are actually coming through that liberal arts, right? It's the Steve Jobs who's so talented and so capable and so driven to achieve his objectives that it really didn't matter what he studied. He was going to have an impact no matter what, Mm -hmm. right? Then you have guys like me. Right. And I'll, and I'll be really straightforward with you. I went, you know, I started out in the sciences when I was in high school. I did some really interesting stuff in physics and had the opportunity to go to UC Berkeley and work in the physics lab for Louis Alvarez, who won the Nobel Prize in physics. And my takeaway from that is I will never win a Nobel Prize. Right. I am not that good. And so yeah. my immediate reaction is, screw it. I'm going to go into applied economics, which is what we call finance, and I'm going to figure out if I can be pretty good at that. And the irony is once I learned how to do that skill, right, I went to the world's most prestigious vocational education system. The University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business for Undergrads is a vocational school for finance guys. Yep. Right. Girls as well. My daughter is actually there right now. And she's kicking ass, not because she's a genius or anything else. I think she's brilliant, but because she's working hard and and applying herself to learning what they can teach there right it's try her to change your mind etc but michael when you say you go to college to learn how to think right i i don't want to like i am a i'll say this again like i'm a jerk i'm an asshole i'll use the language right the reality is that is a very limited value for all but a tiny tiny fraction of society right that skill to think logically that skill to be able to put together ikea furniture That skill to be able to repair a hot water heater or to figure out a slightly better way to run an assembly line, that does not require deep thinking study. It requires a rudimentary understanding of the scientific method that says, here's how you form a null hypothesis, and here's how you prove or disprove it. It doesn't require you to study classics and Latin and what Caesar wrote and you know all sorts of philosophy stuff and to understand french medieval literature like it doesn't do you any good to advance society point. in that uh, That's a
0: nuanced take i hadn't heard that one before i need i need some time to digest it and then i will formulate a response for you but i want to end on just like uh on i want to end on on Love just it. this idea yeah. of bitcoin and like solutions here right so so we've identified the problem right in some you know kind of tragically flawed way the system is not serving people anymore um uh, like as one thing that I've figured out about my like blockworks currently, I mean when you're when you're trying to lead something or change a system and build a culture, or whatever, you have like jobs, but your main job is just get everyone rowing in the right direction, right? You want everyone rowing in tandem. As long as you do that, people are generally pretty good. And one good way to do that is to have shared cultures, norms, values, etc. Uh, Alex Gladstein, actually, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, pushed back on me the last time I said this, but this is one of the ways that I view Bitcoin: is it's a check. Um, in the form of what it actually is, right? The way that the network is set up. But also, it's a community of people with shared values. And I actually view it as being very, very ideologically complementary or or in agreement with American ideologies and values in that it's kind of like... I think at the heart of uh, America, actually, and what's interesting about this country is that we've built a government where you've actually... you, You preserve certain freedoms for the people. And sometimes that manifests itself in this annoying way. Like, I want my... Want my guns and don't restrict my liberty. I get it. But also I think that's part I think that's part of what makes this country great. And I view Bitcoin as being a a, a community of people with, with aligned values that is worth leaning into. So all the technology stuff aside. It's
1: a technological evolution of of that, that governmental system. Right. I, so I, I guess my I question do. for you is or a technological manifestation. Of the evolution so my question for you is that
0: system. like if, if the current system and the way that it's aligned, if the way politicians pay themselves, if the way the banking system is set up, whatever it is, it's all flawed. Is the most realistic solution to come from within that system or something from externally, a new development to that system, preferably one that has aligned ideologies and values? And that's – sorry, this is my annoying like leading question. Is that, that's kind of how I view – Bitcoin. I view it as a useful check on government, which I think is part of what made the U.S. government uh, such a novel experiment and successful in the beginning. Uh, and I view it as a, as like an external change to the system, as opposed to trying to reform from within, which has historically been very difficult to do. So, I don't know, like Mike. I but part of our, I wanted to get you on this pod. I always value your opinions. But you know, you and I were going back and forth on Twitter the other day, and we were kind of like, well, is is separation of uh, you know the state's ability to issue money something worth worth fighting for? And if so, and your point was kind of you, you tweeted back a picture of someone getting their entrails drawn out during the uh, some revolution or another. I was like, I, I kind of think that is at the crux of the debate here. Um, so this is my long rambling conclusion. Where i have do, do you agree with that framework of looking at it or what closing thoughts, I guess, because we're already over time here?
2: so i I mean that's largely directed at me because i think that mark would very much agree with that observation right and the irony of course is that i would deeply agree with the characterization or the articulation that a check on government activity and a check on government behavior is incredibly important and incredibly valuable if nothing else that i say Mm -hmm. comes through i want that to be understood but it is a fundamental misunderstanding of how the system worked and what were the historical checks on that. That's why you hear me introduce things like the introduction of the quote-unquote new world and the unfortunate depopulation of that world by diseases like smallpox that freed up an incredible land surplus for the serfs of Europe and to a lesser extent those of Asia to say, I don't like the direction that this is going. I'm going to physically remove myself from the system, and that's going to place pressure on those Who have laid claim to my resources right like that's an incredibly important feature when you talk about doing it in cyberspace one you're not actually physically separating yourself from the capacity for violence from the state in other words the king can still walk up to you and have you killed right and i don't care if it's your coins i don't care if it's your keys they pull that trigger you're dead as a doorknob right and until you can physically remove yourself from that system and have the capacity to defend yourself against the depredations of that system as we did in the American revolution mm-hmm. right then it's meaningless it's a little tiny tool right but it is not a solution and if you want to actually declare yourself as a revolutionary and you want to store your money on on the chain and you want to use, allow the chain to identify hey guess what here's michael lipolito's wallet And we all we have to do is prevent Michael from accessing any traditional access to the banking system and then kill his mother, right, which is well within their power to do. We see that with China holding families hostages on a continuous basis to influence the behavior of um, American citizens and others, right? Like until you have that capacity, you don't actually have the ability to put that check. All you've done is raise your hand and said, shoot me first. Again, we don't have time to to
1: to complete. We'll have to come back and do this again. I like I like the the framing, um, and I would I would push back in uh you know what, what I love about having a conversation with with Mike, and I've been having a conversation with Mike for you know, twenty five years. Um, having conversations, plural, with Mike for twenty five years is he's one of the few people. That still believe that dialogue and debate in search of truth is is what life is about, and and it bothers me that you know on Twitter he gets labeled or I or I get labeled as as being too extreme. I'm like, no, no, just the opposite. We're, we're we may have strong opinions loosely held, and we'll change our mind if the facts change, but uh, dialogue and debate. In search of truth is is everything there is. So I think there's a, a number of interesting points there. I do think that the the the, the point that's really good, and give me enough time to, to go too deep into it, but the point that's really good is separation of church and state was real. And, and what that really meant was that the church had monopoly on power and violence for hundreds of years, probably thousands of years if I actually go all the way back. Um, and then that was replaced with the printing press that monopoly got busted and the governments took over through, through media, uh, either government media or government media or influence media. And the internet kind of busted that monopoly. And now, now we've got this thing, but the problem is I I've had the same conversation. If someone says, not your keys, not your coins. Okay. Literally gun at your temple. Are you giving up your keys? You could say no, but as Mike said, then you're then you're cold. I mean, then it's gone. And I the fact that violence is still under the control of regimes is a very challenging part of this whole thing that requires many, many other hours of, of conversation.
2: Yeah, I, I, I appreciate you saying that and I appreciate the way that you frame that response. Um and I just want to be very clear, and this is like, you know, both of you know this. And for those viewing this, like, I view that as evil, right? I don't want that to be the case, <laughs> right, but exactly. I'm stating a fact yeah. again, right? That does exist. And the behavior of the Bitcoin community, I would argue, has been so toxic in its failure to police itself for criminality, for its refusal to call out behavior that is Designed to destroy the society in which it participates, right? Meaning the broader society. The use of language like "not gonna make it," "have fun staying poor," "okay boomer," etc. Like they've devalued themselves so deeply that I actually don't think we can even take them seriously anymore. And I understand that Mark has a different perspective on it, and I ref- I respect that. But I actually think that the that, that the die has already been cast. Um. So we'll see. And I think it was an incredible lost opportunity to work within the system to get it to think thoughtfully, right? If we had chosen to have these types of dialogues, if we would had these tools available, and if people were willing to take the time to go over time and listen and really try to digest and understand what people are saying when they're highlighting this, we might have had a different conclusion. Yeah, but but that's the problem. Really we, right. we went to Washington multiple times and, and
1: we tried. Um, we tried and to have I'm, conversations and, and I'm
2: going and- to flip that on the other side, right? I mean, the, the, the hypocrisy of Cynthia Loomis' behavior as it relates to Sarah Raskin is just insane, right? But it's it, we, we have fractured on – they're on my side. They're against me. Right. I'm for the Catholic yeah. Church. I'm yeah. for the Protestant Church. Let's kill each other yeah right? it, no no and and that, that are...
1: that's absolutely true right the the left right in out I call it in and out, no left or right but but my point is that i I believe and i and I foundationally believe this, which I'm not happy about is I, I don't believe that the powers that be and this wraps all the way back to all the people we're talking about today from Russia to Canada to to the United States to China I don't believe. They're well-intentioned at the, at the very top, at the very tippy top of this all-seeing pyramid. By the way, did you see this thing, just, just total non-sequitur, and that there are three groups of pyramids around the world that make Orion's belt. And if you connect them linearly, they make Orion's belt. I did not know that. I did not. I did not I did know where you're a, going. There's, a, there's that. a set of three pyramids in China, <laughs> three in Egypt and three in Mexico, and they line yeah. up perfectly. As if they make Orion's belt. like That's actually pretty cool.
0: Anyway. Pretty cool. I will be suspicious. some slightly more optimistic thing. I actually do believe that people in charge are actually have good intentions. The way that I think about it is like imagine if you'd been doing something your entire life and your entire frameworks and ways that you thought the world worked was wrapped around a certain ideology. It takes a lot to unwind that. And I actually think a lot of what we're watching right now is ideologies that served – for a particular period of time, ideologies that are wrapped up in institutions that served for a long period of time being challenged and ultimately – Yeah. But see, that's the problem. You're think- an
1: old soul. That was true in 1776. <laughs> <laughs> it was true in 1820s. It ceased being true in the 1860s. It stopped being true in the 1900s. And uh, the, the, No, because it, it cost $100 million to become a senator in this country. $100 million. Not very many people have $100 million. Therefore, you are owned by people. And therefore, I don't believe you are acting in a positive interest, that's just me.
2: So so I'm I'm gonna steal the end um, and offer up a quote, right? Uh, Because I disagree with Mark that it's tied to the 20th century or the 21st century or even the 19th century. Um, The oldest line in parenting, and this is not the quote I'm gonna give you, is this is gonna hurt me more than it's gonna hurt you. Right. That's the oldest line in parenting. And it's totally fallacious. Is it true? Absol- <laughs> it's, it's absolutely untrue. It's, probably, it's yeah. probably in Latin at some point, Michael. But um, yeah. the, the, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis, and it goes back to this issue of well-intentioned, right? Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. These people who are in charge actually think they are doing the right thing. That's the danger. And that's why I I agree, by the way. I mean, and I'll just emphasize this. That's why the check is important. It's why inherited monarchies are dangerous, right? Because people rise to the top, not because of their skill, not because of the thoughtfulness of the direction that they want to take society, but because they're members of the Lucky Sperm Club. And that's the problem with oligarchies, with aristocracies, et cetera, right? What the unique innovation was our willingness in the to allow people to move. And, and, and in all seriousness, like... I don't really believe in the Illuminati, which may mean I'm a fool. Oh, right? oh so, come on, you have to. I don't. I 13, 13 ancient bloodlines
1: all traced back to the Rothschilds. Come on.
2: And and everybody, in one form or another, had their great, 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 great grandmother impregnated by Genghis Khan, right? So, you know, it's probably true. It, it, probably it's true. just not actually useful to, to track those sorts of facts in my all analysis. Right. But that's. Right. That, that, you know that's where we may, we, right. we may you do know up.
1: you do know that that Bill Clinton's great great grandfather is on the back of the two dollar bill, right?
2: And and I will tell you that my great 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 grandfather was the uh, 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 creator of the um, uh, Sherman Antitrust Act, and I inherited wow. nothing from it absolutely awesome. nothing right awesome. there was no influence awesome. that accrued to me as a function of that so awesome. anyway this was awesome michael thank you so much and awesome. i apologize for hijacking the end and pushing us even further. no it's awesome no thanks, mike.
0: no i'm literally like trying to jam one thing in but i'm not going to resist the urge because you made me think of something but all right, we'll have to do this again at another time thanks for coming in this is going to be an interesting one mike you popped in like in media race here so this was really great guys i can't tell you how much i enjoyed this conversation so thanks awesome. for coming on mike awesome it's always thank you guys. very much right. right, guys Cheers, guys. Take care.